Welcome to Practical Christian Living. We have 5,000 Greek manuscripts and 24,600 manuscripts in general. Some of them written in Latin, some of them written in Coptic, which is Egyptian. And the very fact that we have so many of these manuscripts is very, very powerful. We know the Bible is true. We know it is accurate. And we know that we can place our lives in the certainty of God's Word because of manuscript evidence. Yes, we're briefly looking at how we know the Bible is true, but today's study here on Practical Christian Living is really dedicated to the incredible mercy and grace that Jesus has for His children when we blow it. We're in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Please stay with us. Here's Robert Furrow. We are so grateful for your love, for your mercy, for your work in our lives. We're thankful for those that you have put us around as lights. We pray that we would shine brightly, that we would not forget in the midst of the storm to keep our eyes upon you and to know that we have a purpose and we have a call and we would stay true to that purpose and call. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today, I've actually got two of them. Number one is to drop your rocks. That's the title. Drop your rocks. If you have rocks and you're ready to hurl them at somebody who has some sin in your life, then this will be a message to you to rethink the way you handle those that are caught in sin. Second is, and this is the real title, the surprising grace of God. And God's grace truly is surprising. And we're so thankful for that. The lessons that we learn in this text are absolutely amazing. We see His work, His compassion, His justice displayed for us. Each of us has shame and guilt and regret and remorse. We all feel it. We still feel it today. The Bible says we, like sheep, are prone to go astray. We all know what it's like. We have the same common lot in life. We all do the same kind of things. We all know what it's like to be and feel guilty. Paul did. In Romans chapter 7, he said, the very things that I want to do, I don't do. The very things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Whenever I read that passage, I'm always amazed to see how many people shake their head as they listen to it that we all go, yeah, and I do too, I'm right there with you. The very things that I, I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I want to be convicted over my sin. I want to be convicted over the change that I need to make, but I don't want to be condemned. And that's the wonderful thing about this account of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus convicts her, but he doesn't condemn her. That could be another title to be convicted and not condemned. We'll talk more about that near the end of this study. Today, we see Jesus meeting this woman and she is drugged down the street and she is publicly accused. And this must have multiplied her guilt and her shame as she stood there in front of the most righteous man who ever lived. And how surprising it must have been to her as well. I want to take a moment and look at this text. Actually, look at it in your Bible. If you have your Bible open there, look at it. 
It starts actually in verse 53 and then goes down until verse 11. This is a section of scripture that helps us to stop and pause and take a look at textual manuscript evidence. So let's just hit the pause button on the grace and mercy for a moment. I know that I don't want to do that, all right? But let's just hit that pause button and let's for a moment talk about manuscript evidence. How did we get our Bible? Did God deliver this to someone out of heaven with little ribbons hanging on it, leather bound? The word of God. No, we have scrolls and we have manuscripts. Manuscripts are anything that was handwritten. And we have some very, very old manuscripts of the New Testament. The oldest piece of manuscript is dated conservatively to 125. Some believe it goes as far back as 100. When I first began pastoring in 1985, most scholars believed that the New Testament was written right before the very first council in 326. The council that took the 66 books of the Bible, brought them together and said that this is our Bible. Most scholars believed that. But a lot has happened in those 35 years. There's been a lot of discoveries. And men have honestly searched through the scriptures, through the different books, to see if they looked like books that were written by men closer to being in the 300s or men closer to being in the times that it had taken place. So that now virtually there are none who are experts in the area of manuscripts who will say that the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy were not written by Paul or the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians weren't the first books to be written and that Mark didn't write the manuscripts of Mark and that Luke didn't write Luke or, or the book of Acts. There's so much evidence. We have 5,000 Greek manuscripts and 24,600 manuscripts in general. Some of them written in Latin, some of them written in Coptic, which is Egyptian. And the very fact that we have so many of these manuscripts is very, very powerful. Years ago, I was invited to go speak at the U of A, just one of their classes, by, um, by one of the students of a certain professor. And I was given the topic of the Bible. So I had prepared the reliability of Scripture. I wanted to go in, I wanted to talk about prophecy. I wanted to talk about how the Bible is accurate geographically. It's accurate in many different ways. I had it all planned. But when I got there, the professor introduced me to the class and said, uh, this is Robert Furrow. He's a pastor here in town. He's going to talk to us about the discrepancies in the Bible. Might have been nice to know that that was my topic before I got there. But so when I got up, I asked him, how many discrepancies do you think they are? And he said, well, hundreds. And I said, well, no, there's thousands. And he was shocked to hear me say that, as if I would cover that fact up. If we have 24,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament and we build our translations off of those manuscripts, if there's one difference in every manuscript, there's 24,000 variances in the scriptures. Just one difference. And I'll tell you, that depending on the manuscripts, there are manuscripts that are very similar and there are manuscripts that are very different so that if you count one discrepancy, one difference from another manuscript, you can come up with hundreds of thousands of discrepancies between the manuscripts. And people who are critics of the Bible go, that's, that's good news for us to hear. 
But it really is good news for us because not only is there discrepancies, but the discrepancies are a fraction of those manuscripts, which means there's all this similarity and the discrepancies aren't in the same places. So when we take each manuscript and they begin to lay them like a stencil on top of each other, the vast majority of it agrees. And there's very little left out that shows a total discrepancy. There's certainly some. The text in front of us today is one of them. It is not in the oldest manuscripts of John. So there are those who believe that this account should not be put in the Bible because it's not in the original manuscripts. The oldest book of John, I shouldn't say it's not in the original, it's not in the oldest manuscripts we have. Remember, we don't have the autographed copies, so we don't know. But there is some curiosity, and that is that in the oldest manuscripts, there's a break at the end of where this is cut out and at the beginning and the end of it. So they're writing in this codex, which is a book form, and when they come to this section, they leave a gap and they move on. So that's caused some to wonder why they leave a gap where this was. Also, early church fathers, this shows up in manuscripts somewhere in the 300s. Early church fathers in the 200s quote this passage. So we know this passage was around before it shows up in manuscripts that we have. In other words, there were manuscripts that had it. Some suggest it was in other places. Some suggest it was in John. Also, we know that this fits the criteria of what the life of Jesus is like. There is evidence that perhaps this was not in the original manuscript and therefore it never happened. But there is also evidence that this was quoted by early New Testament fathers and that it could have been in the early manuscripts and that this actually did happen which means you have to make a decision. I have to make a decision. If you made a decision and said, well, I don't believe that this story is really a story of Jesus. I don't think it ever happened. Well, that's fine. What, what does that mean to all of the passages that agree about your salvation and his work on the cross and atonement and all of the things that agree in the pages of scripture? I happen to take the other view. I look at this account and I say, the very fact there were first century uh, church fathers, second century first fathers, who publicly objected to this verse, this passage. I told you that there were church fathers that mentioned it. Some of them said they didn't believe that it should have been in scripture because they believed that it was encouraging adultery. When this text doesn't encourage adultery at all, we'll see that. And so some believe the reason it got pulled out of the, the oldest manuscripts that we have is because church fathers objected to it and some left a gap in there because they didn't know what to do. As they were copying it, they came and they left a gap and maybe it was there all along. Now, if you choose to reject it and I choose to accept it and you're right and I'm wrong, what happens in the long run? Or if I'm right and you're wrong, what happens in the long run? So because it doesn't have to do with any, it has nothing to do with any salvation issues, the grace and mercy of God can be seen in other texts and other places that I believe and choose to believe that it was in the original manuscripts. I was challenged by someone one time after I taught it saying, because this isn't in the oldest manuscripts, should you be teaching it? And I just wanted to stop and pause and let you guys know, yes, I should be teaching it. I really believe there is something here for us. And I really believe that this event took place. And um, we, we see it here in verse one of chapter eight. 
It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And it really starts in verse 53. It says, then everyone went to their own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We're not told why he went there. Maybe he went there because he didn't have any place else to stay. Maybe he wanted to go and spend the night alone in the garden of Gethsemane. But then it says, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in the act of adultery. So these scribes and Pharisees are religious leaders. They're the ones that dressed up looking spiritual and they drag this woman caught in the act of adultery and missing is the man. Where's the man at? If they caught her in the act, then shouldn't they have brought both of them to Jesus? And this suggests that perhaps this was a setup that maybe this woman was a prostitute and maybe they set her up so they could catch her in the act so they could bring her to Jesus. And notice that it says here, the scribes and Pharisees brought this woman caught in the act of adultery and when they had set her before him in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they have, might have something of which to accuse him. So they were hoping to trap him. If Jesus said stone her, they could say to the Romans, this man is commanding people to be killed. If he said let her live, they could say to the people, this man is not following the law. To them, they thought it was a win-win situation. It's not the only win-win that they thought they had. Remember when they came to Jesus and said, teacher, should we pay our taxes? If Jesus said no, then they would go to the Romans. If he said yes, they would say, see, this guy is on the side of the Romans. So they thought they had a win-win. Jesus said, show me a denarius. They showed him. He said, whose face is on it? They said, Caesar's. He said, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and give to God the things that are God's. And they went rats. It's a lose-lose, not a win-win. And that's exactly what they're going to discover here as well. Because Jesus is the most compassionate man who ever lived. And I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad for the wisdom that he has. And it says they came to him hoping that they might catch him, that they might have something to accuse him for, the middle of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Isn't that great? He just ignores them. He's like, teacher, what should we do? Moses says we should stone her. And the law did say that if someone was committed adultery, that they should be stoned. I also want to add that we don't have any accounts of that happening in Israel during this time. There's not many accounts in all of history of them stoning someone caught in the act of adultery. They just didn't do it. But here they think they've got Jesus. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. But he stoops down and he begins to write on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. And the word for write here isn't the word for doodle. Doesn't mean he just went down on the ground and he started to draw a horse or something, you know. Some believe that he wrote out, thou shalt not commit adultery. That that was the law. He wrote it out. Some believe that he wrote down the sins of the men holding the rocks. Now, we don't know. All of that is speculation. But I like to think that that's the case. 
the hearts of these men that they would not care for this woman at all and the heart of Jesus for people caught, captured, enslaved by sin is such an amazing contrast. I don't know what he wrote, but Jesus stooped down to her level. She was brought to them and cast down before him and said, we caught her in the act of adultery. Moses says to kill him, what do you say? And Jesus stooped down to her level. And this is a picture of what Jesus did when he became a man. He joined us in this world. He joined us in our suffering. He joined us in what it was like to be human, even though we are filthy. And I, of course, don't mean physically. I mean spiritually. We have sin. We're like sheep that are prone to go astray. We're prone to, to seek our own way. We're prone to be prideful. We're prone to sin. And Jesus said, I want to go and walk among them. God became flesh and dwelt among us that we would behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And just as Jesus stooped down next to that woman, he has stooped down next to me. And even though I have sinned, he has forgiven my sin. When is the last time that you've been really struck that you were a sinner and God has forgiven you? We used to sing a song here. I, I don't even remember the tune of the song now. That's how long ago it was. But it's that passage out of Isaiah that we would sing. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. And I remember sitting right over here getting ready to teach and just being moved that all my sin had been forgiven, that I had reasoned with God and he had forgiven me. I love that. I love when I'm really moved by that truth that I was very much like this woman and that he forgave me, that he came down to our level. And they just, and, and he ignores them what they said. And it says, when he continued asking, verse 7, so they just kept asking, what about it? The law says to stone her. What about it? Should we kill her? What do you think? What do you say? They kept asking him. He raised up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. What a great statement. If you're sinless, then you throw the first stone. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience went out one by one beginning with the oldest even to the least and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst so Jesus is, is there now and he is alone and it says that they were convicted and they left one by one from the oldest to the youngest that might be because the older that we are the more we understand about our sin the younger we are, the more we don't understand our propensity to sin. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was just 14 years old, and somewhere within those first four years, I had heard of a friend that had walked away from God. He had backslidden, just made a decision to walk away from God. And I remember saying to a friend, I don't understand how anybody could leave Jesus. I don't understand how anybody could do it. A few years later, the pastor of the church that I went to had an affair with the secretary and someone that had been influential in my life had an affair as well and was getting a divorce. And I said, if this is what Christianity is, then I'm out. But the thing is, I know this now. That was my excuse. 
If I had had things right between me and God, I would have never have walked away. I used that as an excuse to walk away. And so I, I walked away from God. I backslid. I did the very thing I said. I can't believe that they would do. I would never do that. The very thing that I said I would never do is the very thing that I did when I turned around and walked away. Now I have empathy. Now when I hear that someone has walked away from the Lord, I know they can come back because Jesus left the 99 and came for me. And when he brought me back in, he didn't say, well, now you can't be a pastor. Well, too bad. You walked away for a year. And I walked away completely, folks. I walked away from him totally. But God came after me. God didn't leave me alone. And he brought me back. And he didn't bring me back as a second-class Christian. He brought me back all of the way. Now that I'm older, I don't say such things. I don't say I can't believe they would leave because we've gone through more experiences. And so they dropped the stones from the older to the youngest. And finally, the youngest, the last one who thought they would never do anything went, well, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm not that good either and drops the final stone. Notice that they were convicted by their conscience. We'll come back to that in a moment. And Jesus is standing alone there now with this woman. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? These accusers of yours. Has no one condemned you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Note that their conscience convicted him and he looked around and saw no one who could condemn her. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. I pray for conviction in my preaching. Conviction is when you are, when you see something clearly and you turn and you repent from it. Conviction is where God shows you that there's a problem. Conviction is when I'm preparing a Bible study and when I'm in my study, God starts speaking to me and I fall under the conviction of the Word of God. You know that happens when in the middle of a study, I say to you something like this, I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. That's because I received a conviction by God. And conviction is good. What's the conviction here? Go your way and sin no more. The early church fathers that had a problem with this text should have never have had a problem with this text at all. He wasn't saying it was okay. He was saying you're forgiven. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. After Paul had said in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, praise be to God, it is Jesus Messiah. And there is Romans 8, 1, now the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. I've always hesitated to say that, but the more I read Romans 8, the more I think it's the greatest chapter. It's the highlight. It, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is not condemning you. See, these guys that drug this woman there, the Bible says, the mercy you give is the mercy you're gonna receive. You don't ever want to be that person. The Bible says that we are judged. Here's a scary one. We are judged by what we say. Have you ever been talking about somebody and all of a sudden had that passage just brought to your mind? Or I've read it before and I thought, oh, I really got to watch what I say. If God's going to judge me by the words I say, it's as if God goes, oh, you know that, do you? And since I need mercy, I want to be the most merciful person that I can. The Bible says the manner you judge is the manner that God judges you. God sees the way you treat people. 
and God reflects his treatment of you in that manner. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kagan 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.